listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Hello everyone, happy Wednesday, and welcome to the Skylight Books Crowdcast channel. Thank you so much for joining us for this event in partnership with Book Passage, celebrating Yoon Choi and her new short story collection, Skinship. And before we get started, I will introduce you to our guests tonight. Yoon Choi was born in Korea and moved to the US at the age of three. She has an MA from Johns Hopkins and is a former Stegner Fellow at Stanford. Her stories and essays have appeared in New England Review, Michigan Quarterly Review, Narrative Magazine, and The Best American Short Stories 2018. She lives with her husband and four children in Anaheim, California, and she will be in conversation with Steph Cha. Steph Cha is the author of Your House Will Pay, winner of the Los Angeles Times Book Prize and the California Book Award, and the Juniper Song Crime Trilogy. She's a critic whose work has appeared in the Los Angeles Times, USA Today, and the Los Angeles Review of Books, where she served as noir direct noir editor and is the current series editor of the Best American Mystery and Suspense Anthology. A native of the San Fernando Valley, she lives in Los Angeles with her family. Welcome both Yoon and Steph. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Um, hi Yoon, uh, I, really, I, I really enjoyed your book. Skinship, which everyone can purchase with that green button. Um, and, you know, I, I just want to start by asking, uh, you know, how this, uh, how this uh, last year and a half has been for you, you know, I, and I wonder about kind of having your, your first like short story collection come out uh, in in this climate, like, do you, do you, do you feel like you had like, particular expectations of what the publication process would feel like? And has it, has it been different? Well, First of all, thank you, Steph. I loved your book as well. Oh, thank you. Beautiful cover. We both have black bugs. Look. Yeah. No, I like that. Uh, that like matte black. I think is yeah. real, real classy. <laughs> I, I'm a huge fan of this book. Um, I I get asked that question, and I'm not sure how to answer. Everything about the past year and a half has been surreal, and part of it is the surrealness of the pandemic. And then part of it is just the surrealness of the publication process. Um, I'm sure you know, but you've gone through it many, many more times than I have. But the idea that you take a manuscript and it's your you know, Google Doc, you ship it off to your agent, and then it goes through this, this long process um, is, is kind of amazing and weird and cool. Um, in the middle of that, there was all this reality happening. My kids' schools shut down, they were here. So there was a lot of real life mixed in with the editing process and making decisions. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's been as difficult here as it's been for everybody else, I think, you know? I'm curious, um, actually, I, 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 uh, I don't think I've, I don't usually ask people this, but I have a specific reason. I'm curious, did you know anyone who is like a professional writer when you were growing up? No. Okay, I had a, because I had a hunch because I had that same experience. Um, you know, I grew up in a Korean immigrant community. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not an immigrant, I was born here. I know, I saw from your bio that you came here when you were three, um, but you know, I, and I also happened to kind of read an interview that you, where you talked about, you know, the, the writers that you read when you were younger, like not being, you know, not really looking like you. Um, yeah, this, so did, when did you think that you wanted to be a writer? You know, cause for me it was like when I was a little kid but I thought of it as kind of like a pipe dream. 
I, I did think of it as a pipe dream. And honestly, I, I might still be thinking of it as a pipe dream, you know? Like, <laughs> um, so I, I want to say that it only has become more real to me as I became an older adult, but I know that I have a journal entry somewhere from when I was in high school or something where I did write, I am going to be a writer. I don't know why I did that because I wasn't actively doing anything to pursue that goal. Um, but yeah, I mean, the evidence is there somewhere. I mean, not only did I not know any professional writers, but I didn't know any professional artists in any kind of capacity mm -hmm. at all. I mean, the people that my parents knew were either, um, you know, in professions like they were doctors or lawyers, or many of them were just small businessmen. Um, and so that was the reality that I grew up with. But I have to say that I didn't have the typical, um, like stereotypical experience of my parents telling me don't pursue it. Mm -hmm. um, they were very, they knew very well from the beginning that I wasn't going to excel in any kind of professional capacity. So it was kind of like, English humanities like that side was was okay with them so in that sense I was lucky yeah I had that too you know and I wonder if that's like what made it possible for us to do this in some way right not having to overcome like an incredible amount of uh, family resistance in addition to just like not having the examples um but uh you know how did you how did you come to writing I saw I, I also saw just like a little snippet in an interview that interview where you, did you go to law school too? Okay, so I, I went. <laughs> I, I went to law school. So I, I saw that, but I think you went for a longer time than I did. I was in law school for literally a month. And then I went to the dean and she okay. said, you want to take a year off. And I think she knew as she was saying that, that she would never see me again. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I always joke, like my first class was called torts and I mm -hmm. still don't know what a tort is like <laughs> it just was a complete mental block so yeah I, I did go though yeah I mean that's like the kind of I don't know I feel like that's the uh, thing that I did with my English degree thinking you know this this seems like something I could do and still write um so do, so um how did you come to start writing you know what I uh you know I know you want to do it for a long time, but like, uh, how did these stories kind of start taking shape for you? Yeah, so for me, I went to Johns Hopkins and Johns Hopkins actually has a separate English lit major and it has something called writing seminars, which is more of a creative writing. Um, in fact, it's the undergrad program is almost what we would say an MFA is run like with those uh, typical workshops. And so I went into college thinking I would get an English lit degree and there was like a critical theory class, which was mandatory and I hated that class. Mm. And I easily switched my major at that time to writing sims. So, um, so I, I had a kind of very early workshop experience and then I went right into, at that time it was called an MA program and then it later turned into an MFA program at Hopkins. Um, and so I'd been doing that creative writing workshop thing for a while. Um, but I, you know, for me, it was really difficult at, you know, in my early 20s to figure out what it was that I wanted to write about. I think there were so many things I didn't want to be, you know, I didn't mm -hmm. want to write like a, like a wooden stereotypical Asian um, fiction, but I, don't think I had the imagination to see what else it could be, you know? So it seemed to me at the time and looking back, it's kind of foolish, but it seemed like my two options were either to somehow fudge heritage in my writing um, by writing about, you know, kind of rootless, nameless narrators mm. or something, but I just couldn't really figure out what it was I wanted to do. So when I left the, um, when I left my MA program, I got another degree. <laughs> I have an English lit degree from Stanford because, you know, the only thing I knew how to do was 
get into school <laughs> and do more. Yeah, academic. I so, relate. Yeah. So at that time, I was like, okay, I'm going to get an MA. I'm going to be an academic. I'm going to do a PhD. Didn't really like that. So I went to law school, tried that. Um, and then I got married and I had kids. I had four kids in five years. So it was, you know, like that was kind of like a stretch of time <laughs> in my life where I was not writing at all. Um, and then after my fourth, Andrew was born, maybe he was like a year old or something. Um, he went to sleep one night and I was like, okay, just one hour a day. I'm just going to do a writing exercise. Like, I, I think I just wanted to, you know, I missed it. I wanted to like see what would come out. Um, and what I realized that I wrote then was I was writing about a Korean grandfather, which was unusual for me. You know, I gave him a name and um, then I named his wife. And in making all of those little choices, I think I was taking steps toward the fiction that I myself wanted to write um, because it unlocked something for me. So that's when I, that's when I started writing again. Is uh and that's that was the art of losing, right? Mm -hmm. it became yeah. the art of losing. Um, it's a really beautiful story. So was that the first story in skinship that came together, or did you use any of your like earliest from like twenties? Oh no, like in my twenties, like those discs, like we used to use those little like I don't I don't even remember the floppy disks that I lost everything. Yeah. Or oh, they no. might, like, I might have some notebooks in a box somewhere, but <laughs> I remember nothing from that time, and honestly. I don't, I don't need to go back. So were you writing, you know, I know, you know, I really relate to a lot of what you're saying because like I had, I had that same kind of thought process, you know, in my early days of writing when I was thinking, just thinking about being a writer, fantasizing about it, thinking like, you know, can I even write Korean characters? Like I remember, I remember it was a conscious decision for me to like make my first protagonist Korean, Korean American, you know, because it just felt so different from everything else I was reading. And I think I had a moment where I was like, oh, but like, nobody needs me to like write another like white woman, you know, <laughs> or, or, and um, yeah, I actually, I, I just, uh, I recently interviewed Katie Kitamura about her new book, uh, Intimacies, which is really good. And I actually thought that like, she was able to pull off that, uh, the trick of like having characters who are like probably Asian, but like, it's really murky and in the background and it's because they're kind of rootless unnamed mm -hmm. um you know they're like these unnamed narrators um but i do think it's like hard for us to you know and, and i'm talking about uh you know any non-white writer really to kind of navigate that identity issue and i feel like i started from a place of real defensiveness and like not wanting and like not wanting to do the stereotypical expected thing not wanting to like feel tied to like this grand identity novel you know and I, and, you know, I feel like you, you, you know, all these stories are about like Korean, Koreans in America, right? Korean Americans and, you know, deeply family oriented and, and, you know, but it's, it's, it's not like a, it's not like an immigrant struggle novel, you know, there's like some of that, but like, it's all very like delicately, beautifully done. Um, so is that something that like, you just, it, was there a turning point for you where you just like decided, you know, like, screw this like I, i'm just gonna like write koreans and like you, you know what did that thought process look like for you yeah um i think defensiveness is a great word which kind of encapsulates how i felt about about writing in english um, and claiming english as the language in which i wanted to express myself um, i i think because you know when i restarted writing after that long gap, I did feel that there are different types of writers and I think each writer should choose what interests her, right? So Katie Kinomura, whose novel I haven't read yet, um, can write that nameless or, you know, that rootless kind of narrator and that's um, what she's interested in exploring. Or I have friends who travel very far from their heritage and they just use their imagination to kind of create or even a historical novel is in mm -hmm. uh, in a sense an act of like that far-flung imagination i think i had to come to terms with like that's not really the kind of writer that i personally am and i did feel um 
in a small, modest way that I wanted my contribution to the American, you know, like the whole bookshelf to include these particular names and these particular characters because they're not there that much, right? Um, mm -hmm. I was listening to uh, Sandra O oh do an interview and she was talking about like wanting to put out the image of the Asian face, like into yeah. the culture. And in, I mean, I'm not Sandra O, oh, but in that, in that same sense, I do feel like, you know, I would want my daughter to open a book and see a Korean name and how it's rendered. Um, and then beyond that, I do think, um, you know, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I do think that stories that are very specifically cultural in this weird paradoxical way are also extremely universal. Yeah. So I know the experience I have, you know, when I first read Jhumpa Lahiri's Interpreter of Maladies mm -hmm. was one of extreme familiarity. You know, I was reading her very detailed and specific um, writing about Bengali um, Americans, but I was like, oh, that could be a Korean American story also. You know, the, um, the struggles behind the specificity were so universal to me, but also pleasurable in that it was in how it was written. So I don't know, I've kind of come to terms with the fact that that's the kind of writing I, I like to do. That's the thing that interests me. Uh, and solving those issues, which I think earlier had really cramped my style. For example, when a Korean immigrant is speaking in English, how do you render that English so it doesn't mm -hmm. sound stupid, you know, on the page, right? Or if a character is conversing in Korean now and they're using Korean words, like what, how do you uh, translate that dialogue into, um, into English? You know, like all of those things that I thought were so problematic are actually things that I enjoy wrestling with now in creating the fiction. So yeah, long answer, but that's no, I, I was just, uh, you know, I, I was thinking of the story first language, you know, which is, which is written in like the English of, you know, a, a Korean immigrant who like hasn't entirely mastered the language, but is like speaking in English. And it's like, and it was such a pleasure for me to read this story because I haven't, I haven't read a story with that voice before, but it's a voice that's like very familiar to me, you know? Not, not my parents are fluent in English, but like, you know, I grew up in my community and just the kind of cadences of, of the English, the kind of grammatical, the grammatical quirks are like very recognizable and like real to me. Um, and it was just so like lovely spending time with that voice. Um, can you talk about writing, can, can you actually talk about uh, writing this, this character and this voice? Like uh, where, where did she come from? Because um, I, you know, I, I, I thought this was, you know, it's the second, it's the second story in this book. And I, I thought it was like really powerful. Yeah, so um, first language was written, the first like 10 or however many pages was written in an entirely different voice. Um, and mm -hmm. if I were to characterize that voice, it was somebody who was extremely fluent um, and was extremely privileged and was extremely angry. And so I, I just had this idea of, a husband and a wife driving somewhere and she's like everything he's doing is pissing her off um yeah. but the the story just kept getting stuck right around that um 10 page mark um and i've i've told this story before but my um my daughter her name is emma bian and her best friend since kindergarten is emily bian which yeah. is <laughs> difficult for her teachers um her Emma and Emily were in the backseat of my car and I was driving them somewhere and Emily was just telling all these things about her mother that her mother would be horrified if she knew that Emily was sharing. <laughs> <laughs> and um, one of the things Emily said was that when her mother texts me, and we've been texting for years now, um, Emily is actually the one writing the text or at least editing mm -hmm. it because her mother is a non-native speaker and so she doesn't want to expose herself in that way. Um, and I just like that just really struck me as like in the many, many conversations I've had with this woman. Um, and in the many, many years that our daughters have been such close friends, she has not felt comfortable sending me a text because of 
her English and her English isn't isn't terrible. It's just not completely fluent, right? Um, and so that her voice um, and that anxiety of, and I think that that's a very familiar anxiety for many Koreans, including my own parents. You know, of just not being able to represent who you are through your spoken language um, mm -hmm. was really what informed the change of the voice and then kind of informed the rest of the story. So. Yeah, I thought I, I thought even just like from a craft perspective, it was just like so nicely done. Um, yeah, and, and, you and you did it without making her sound stupid or incompetent, you know, it's just, um, yeah, and there's there's so many of these characters who are immigrants or who are in these families where like the parents are you know from from this country where like they like had promising futures over there and then they come here and like you know and they become these like constrained versions of themselves mm -hmm. you know and 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 that's something you know i noticed like different kind of thematic things coming up some of which i think are just like that's the that's part of the texture of like these places and these communities um, yeah, I want to ask about at, at what point did, were you writing these thinking that they would be part of a collection? Like at some point, were you thinking like, oh, I'd like these to be thematically related or like I, I need to address like this, you know, were, like, did you think of this as like a cycle of short stories or, um, you know, were you just writing them kind of piecemeal and they fit nicely together because they feel very well collected? After maybe like the first two, I think I began to think of it pretty deliberately as like a community of stories. Mm -hmm. um, and when I thought of it that way, in terms of of craft, craft related issues, I did think of, you know, really basic things like, do I want a first person narrator or a second person, I mean, or a third person narrator? Um, do I want something um, narrated by someone older or someone younger. Like I, I did make conscious choices in terms of who I wanted to speak next. Um, I also thought that there were certain, they could be stereotypical, but I thought of them more as iconic or representative um, mm -hmm. parts of Korean life in America that I wanted to be on the page. For example, you know, the corner store, right? Um, mm -hmm. That. I, I think that in a certain sense, you know, you think Koreans are like, oh, dry cleaner, or corner store, you know. In another sense, I think that that was the reality because we immigrated like in the 60s, people started immigrating, then they passed along that information to other immigrants. And so um, that's why there's so many of them, right? And so I, to get behind that was something I, I also um, thought consciously about. Um, and I guess another thing in the back of my mind was, writing to the English reader, but also writing to the Korean American reader. Like I, that was very important to me that a Korean American or a Korean person could read this and not be like, oh, but that's not how it was. You know, I have that anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so it, that was very important to me to honor however truthfully I could be um, to these experiences um, to honor that. So kind of all of those things were in the back of my head. Yeah, you know, it's so, I, I think, so I, I have had the same uh, kind of struggles of like thinking about stereotype versus what I think of as prototype, right? Mm -hmm. Like, because you want to write something that feels representative in some way, like it feels like part of the world that we inhabit and we know, while also like avoiding kind of the pitfalls of like flattening characters and stereotyping. And I mean, I've certainly had, um, you know, good read reviewers who um, I definitely should pretend that I haven't read what they said, but you know, who've like accused me of kind of using drawing on stereotype. But I always thought like, no, it's like I wanted to kind of like represent some like a like something that I've like distilled from kind of my experience growing up in in a Korean American community, you know. Um, and I also saw that um, you noted that like you know these like most of these stories are not even remotely autobiograph autobiographical. Um, I think that like people tend to impose that on writers, especially uh, women writers and uh, non-white writers. But um, can, can you talk about like how you kind of drew those, uh, like how, uh, can you talk a little bit more about kind of navigating that 
that line between stereotype and prototype and also like did you worry about it like I worried about it a little bit but like I ultimately like didn't sweat it that much in part because I feel like there's not so much written about Korean Americans Mm -hmm. I guess I am worried about it I've I haven't read Goodreads because I don't think (laughs) no don't don't why would you (laughs) I want to go down (laughs) but um I I'm sure that the difference between what one person will call stereotype and what you call prototype is really a matter of opinion. And so if one is of the opinion that something that is written is stereotypical, I, I don't think that you know I can change that opinion. Um, I think the truth of Korean culture, and I'm only speaking to Korean culture that I know, um, it's a conformist culture. We are, that is part of, I think, my upbringing, that's part of the tradition. Um, and I think that there's like a, a specificity and a vibrancy to Korean culture because of those tendencies to, to do as the group does or to be communal in a certain way. Um, and so I, it's in the back of my mind and I could worry about it. On the other hand, I, I especially with this first book, I I wanted to just write it the way I knew it. And these are the people that I knew, you know, and none of it was autobiographical, but I did feel that each story had familiar things to me Mm -hmm. that I was drawing on in a very conscious way. Um, What's interesting to me is that what is so familiar to me can seem um, very foreign to somebody else, like a you know, certain readers might find in comments that I've heard, or you know, it's it's different, it's new, it's strange, um, and so I don't know. I I can't meet all those expectations, I guess. But um, yeah, I guess it's stereotypical. There are a lot of dry cleaners, right? <laughs> <laughs> what can we do? Do you have um Do you have a favorite story in here, or like a favorite character? Do I have a favorite story? Um, I don't, I don't. Um, the voice in first language was difficult for me to write. So I was, um, and there's like a long letter in that story, which I had never done before. And so I remember setting a timer one day and being like 45 minutes, just crank out a letter, you know, and don't. Um, so I, I do remember that that felt challenging to me. Um, I think the story that feels closest somehow to my sensibilities is Song and Song. I, mm-hmm. I have one sister who's younger than I am. Um, and the idea of two sisters who are very close and yet have made very different life choices um, felt closer to my life experience than, than other things that I'd written about. Um, so and, I, that, and that's the one with a character who's a, who's a writer, a yes. fiction writer. But it's a sister who's the fiction writer. Yeah. Um, but I think the kind of like self-critiquing disgruntled voice of the actual, of the actual narrator is, is probably close to my inner voice <laughs> in some way. You know, that's, uh, um, I, that was actually the story that I read that I was most tempted to kind of impose a um, autobiography onto, just because I know that, you know, I know that you're a fiction writer and one of these characters is a fiction writer. And I also know that, that, that you're a mom, you know, and it felt like this dialogue between, like, between a woman who, like, a very devoted mother and, like, her sister who's, like, who's, like, living in Europe and, like, you know, they haven't seen each other in 10 years. You know, and, and, and I think, like, that's the other thing about writing is that, uh, yeah, people, people, I think there's this inclination to think like one character is based on you, the writer, when like all of them are kind of based on you in some way or another, right? Yeah. Like you put a little piece into everybody. Like, you know, you st- you said you started with like the grandpa, like the voice of this grandpa is like the one that kind of got this all going, right? Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that story because that was, and obviously it's also the most recent one that I read. Um, but I felt like that push and pull was done really well. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm curious if uh, any of your kids have read your writing, actually. They're yeah. like not quite old enough. My daughter might be 
old enough, um, but she's not interested right now, but she's into graphic design. She had a lot of comments on the cover <laughs> and like the author's photo and whether you should go with the smiling one or not. <laughs> but um, no, I, I, and I don't know, honestly, I, I hope if they engage with the book, it will be many years down the line out of my house. Like we're not, um, you know, they're, they're still young. My kids are still pretty young. So. I mean, I, st I started writing in part because like, I wanted to read the kind of book that I, books that I ended mm -hmm. up writing, you know, and I know that you're in the, you're kind of, you, you feel the same way. Um, and, um, you know, and that, that the, the reason I asked about your kids is like, you know, I'm wondering like, do they even not read your book? Like, are they, are they consuming, you know, work by Korean American artists? Like, you know, other books or TV or music or, um, you know, what, like, I'm, I'm wondering like if their engagement with, uh, you know, cause I, I feel like I grew up consuming a lot of like Korean art, but not necessarily <laughs> Korean American. You know, do you feel like they have more access to that? Do they, do they seek it out? No. Um, well, okay. So my daughter is, is a separate, is a separate category. She's my oldest, my three boys, 10, eight and six, they're like into Minecraft, you know, they're not really <laughs> engaged with uh, any kind of art for art's sake. Um, and they have had strange confusions about their identity. Like for my middle one for a while thought he was French. I don't, I don't know why, maybe because he took a little bit of French at school, but mm -hmm. he was like, I'm French and then I'm American and then maybe I'm Japanese. But he just like the idea that he was Korean mm -hmm. just didn't occur to him in this way. That was so fascinating to me. Um, my daughter. So one of the things that I did with my daughter during the pandemic, because I needed to find a shared interest with her as she was getting older, um, is we watched Mr. Sunshine, the mm. Netflix show. And then there's the other one with the parachute. I always forget, Crash Landing on You, the one that yeah. was, so it's like a South Korean heiress parachutes into North Korea. And then like, she falls in love with a North Korean soldier or whatever. Um, I'm not a huge fan of K-drama <laughs> or like Netflix shows in general, but like we watched the whole thing like every night. And one of the things that was so gratifying to me in watching that next to her were, it's like Sandra was saying, it's the Korean faces. It's like, she's looking yeah. at a heroine and it looks like her. Um, and until I had a daughter sitting beside me watching the screen with me, I, I never realized how powerful it can be to see like that it's normal to see an Asian face or yeah. whatever, whatever type of face you're seeing, you know, um, go through the whole range of human emotions from good to bad, um, heroine to villain, you know, all of that. But just, just seeing that on the screen was, it was really moving to me in a way that she probably didn't understand. She probably thought like I was moved by the plot line. <laughs> um, but yeah, so after that, we started watching Alias. Um, and there was definitely that difference there where I was like, oh, there's um there's something more personal that I felt um, she could be experiencing by seeing um, the I, and those are not Korean American works but you know those Korean faces. Yeah, yeah. You know, did uh, what was like what was the first book you read by a Korean American author? So, I remember being given Chang Rae Lee's Native Speaker okay. shortly after it was published. Like I was given it like this is written by a Korean American author and you have to read it. And at that time I did not because, <laughs> you know, because my parents gave it to me. I, I remember that book being in all these different houses and like being passed yeah. along just because it was, it was such like a triumph for the whole community. Yeah. Um, I, I remember, so I didn't read that book right away, but, um, I remember Chang Wei Li's essays about his mother's stomach cancer and her cooking for him and her family before she passed away um, and him replicating those recipes. I remember being so deeply moved by, by those essays um, later on. And so he was someone who, like many other Korean American writers, um, 
I think his existence was just yeah. such an inspiration. Um, yeah. I, I, I thought that, because I, I saw that you talked about Native Speaker before, and I thought that might have been the case, because that was my first book that I came across um, by a Korean American writer too. And, and, um, and, and I had the same experience where it was a, it was the book that I knew that my parents had in their house, you know, and I'd like seen the cover sitting around the house and I didn't like sit up and pick it up until like, you know, I was in law school. Um, and it was just like such a revelation for me, but you know, so what do you, so you grew up with the Western canon, right? Like mm -hmm. same, same as me, like, uh, you, you know, can, can you talk about like kind of, uh, the 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 sort of books and authors who were like influential to you um, and kind of how how you um, yeah you know, how how you developed like your own your your own voice like you know against that backdrop because I felt so much of like you know I I I felt like I admired so many of these white men and I still do I have an incredible amount of loyalty and affection for like so many dead white men. Uh, but can you can you talk about kind of becoming a writer and like finding your voice against that backdrop and like uh, you know your relationship with like the Western canon and like Western writing and thinking too? You know, I know you were talking about kind of Koreanness as like collectivist, and I know you're Korean American as am I, but like I feel like there's something in there too where like the the communal way of thinking, you know, that has to like that filters its way into my my fiction, even though you know I've never like lived in Korea. Mm -hmm. So I grew up with like the great books of the Western whatever in shrink wrap, you know, the, the gilt covers. Like I had three shelves of that. And then we had like the this like leather bound Britannica set. So that was another, you know, set. Um, and then every single thing that my parents thought was a Western classic was somewhere on my bookshelf. Um, so it was things like Gone with the Wind, mm. like in this like gilt copy, right? And it, we had to duct tape it because we read it so many times just for the story. Um, I think From Here to Eternity was there. Um, I, our bookshelves were always really, really full. But my parents never read the books themselves. No. So, you know, like D.H. Lawrence was, I don't think they knew quite what was on the shelf, <laughs> but it was all there. And I read like indiscriminately. I, I mean, we read everywhere. Our water, our books were like waterlogged because we didn't have a TV growing up. So all mm. we did was read. I think when I got older, I, I remember going to Hopkins and going to the workshop and someone saying, does anyone even read Hemingway anymore? And I was so <laughs> shocked. <laughs> like, well, if it's an author and he's on my bookshelf, like, how could you say that? Or, you know, someone was like, oh, John Steinbeck. Like, I was like, I loved John Steinbeck. I had <laughs> thing that John Steinbeck read. And I, I began to become a little bit more sophisticated, but maybe a little bit like insufferable also when I started to learn that people actually critique um, writers for their style or sensibility. Um, when I was more serious about writing, I was in love with Nabokov. Nabokov mm -hmm. and John Cheever were two huge heroes of mine. Um, Tolstoy, I, I loved and still continue to love Tolstoy. Um, and as I got older, I began to love women writers a little bit more deeply, I guess. Um, and so, you know, I, I love Alice Munro. I love um, Mavis Gallant. I love like all of those short story writers who are really interested in um, compressing experience. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, hmm, who else am I? I, I? I always get stuck when I'm supposed to. <laughs> Lori yeah, Moore, I, I love Boise yeah. writers too. Like I was reading Lori Moore more recently. Um, yeah. Do you, uh, do you think of yourself as a short story writer? Um, do you like, I think of myself as a novelist, even though I've written short stories, but that seems, that feels like my natural mode. Like is your natural inclination when you think of story and if, when you think of narrative, are you thinking of, uh, you know, that kind of, that kind of shape and, uh, like that, um, length 
I guess is just like the simple way to put it. I was trying to think of like a smart statement. Yeah. Thing. Um, like, do you, do you think, is that kind of how you think? Like, um, I know there's obviously like, um, you know, when you're writing an hour a day with like four kids, um, you know, that there's maybe something more approachable about that too. But, um, you know, are you, do you have you considered working on a novel or are you working on a novel or is this like your form? Uh, so I think that the short, the longer short story is mm. like my first love, the one that I mm. really fell in love with, um, where I was, it had everything that I needed, but part of it was practical. You know, I could have an aesthetic experience from beginning to end. I could sort of hold it in my hand um, without like losing track, right? Um, for many years in my life, I would pick up a novel, put it down and not find it in the whole like mess of stuff in my house. Um, and I realized also that I didn't miss it. Like a lot of times I just, you know, something about about the novels that I was choosing to read was not holding my interest for that mm -hmm. uh, long period of time. So I, I deeply love the short story and I deeply love the endings of short stories. Those are extremely important to me because in a certain sense, like, I, I think that there's something about that experience of that ending that is just meaningful and aesthetic and beautiful. And like, I, yeah. I love that. Having said that, I'm really interested in longer form as well. When I was reading this, I, I know I shouldn't digress, but like, and I was looking at the structure that you chose in, in flipping the narr narratives between um, the, the daughter of the woman who shot um, a, a little black girl and then his, his, her sister, her brother, right? Narrates part of the novel. I was like, this can only be done in a novel, right? So that energy or structural play or voices, like the different um, voices that you can bring into the novel are starting to interest me a lot, having mm -hmm. finished the collection. Um, so yeah, first love, but will I only write short stories forever? I don't think so. Um, can, I, can I ask one more question? Yeah, of course. Uh, how do you uh i i am i'm curious about this because like I, I i love reading short stories and i know kind of emotionally when like an ending hits but i actually have no idea kind of from a craft perspective like how you approach ending a short story and since you say that that's something that appeals to you like what is like kind of your like what what are you trying to achieve when you like end a short story and like how do you kind of like construct it do you, do, or is it something that you even like know consciously? Like, So I think I go into a story blind with no outline and I muddle around for about, you know, those first 10 pages and I throw out like 50 or 60 pages. I always have two docs open and one is just called draft one, draft two, draft three. And I just, you know, keep piling stuff on there. And somehow through that process, I think subconsciously I'm beginning to know where the chips will fall when I throw them mm -hmm. in the air, although I'm never confident that they will fall in the right place. Um, and then I always have a moment like page 16 where I'm in deep despair and I'm like, this is the story that's really not gonna work. I have a great other idea. I'm gonna scrap this and move on. Um, but the great thing about the Stegner program was because I had a deadline, I could not stop. I just had to you know, push through. Um, when I push through that somehow, and I, and I do think that, um, when you put the right amount of effort and um, thinking into it, I, I do think the subconscious does begin to work with the things that you've thrown out there. Um, as I near that 30 page mark, I feel like things are beginning to have a pattern or a shape because I don't write a very like linear story. Mm -hmm. um, and then when something lands at the ending, then I'll go back and tweak everything to make sure that it kind of all resonates as much as possible um but every time i'm like i have no idea where this is going i have no idea if it's going to be successful or not so the fear is always there <laughs> and yeah so but there's always editing yeah. right <laughs> yeah no and and, and they're, i mean they're they're very good like the endings you know and just the st stories they have this kind of 
they have this really shapely musical quality that uh, that I, I found pretty uh, mesmerizing. Um, anyway, I, I, I will. I think we have uh, questions from people who are not me. So. Yeah, we've got some questions here. So I'm going to minimize my video again. I just came back up to let you guys know that we had some questions. But first, uh, can you talk about the inspiration behind Solo Works for Piano and how the story came together? So I went to a music school on Saturdays um, and I love classical music. So I, I think that one, I just really, really wanted to write a piece with music in it. I love reading about music and I love reading about food. Um, and so that was why the content of that piece is, is musical. I think another energizing kind of thought behind that piece was looking at, and at the time I was at the Stegner program and I was looking at all these other really gifted writers sitting around the workshop table. It's like, what happens to us when we leave? Like we're here, we're all like pouring our hearts and our energies. It was almost like an AA session, like the number of tears and stuff that came up <laughs> at the table. You know, we like dropped everything. I like left my kids with my parents and I just, you know, just to sit here and to honor this thing that not everybody thinks is that important, right? Which is writing literature. And I was like, what happens to us when we leave? Like, we're gonna be out of this island soon. Um, and what do we do with this, with this kind of like flame that we've lit, right? So I think those were kind of like the two um, subconscious thought, and not even subconscious, but I think those were the two motivating thoughts behind that story. Do you discuss your stories or story ideas with other people while writing them? And if you do, who do you discuss them with? No, never. <laughs> I never discuss it. I don't love discussing it when it's done either. Um, my husband will read it and then he'll be like, is this me or was this me? <laughs> None of it is you. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I don't love talking about it. Yeah. And then one last question that I thought would be great to end on is, will your book be translated for Korean readers or in any other languages? I don't know, maybe, <laughs> hopefully. But right now my mom is listening to it on Audible because she, she thinks that'll be easier than reading it in English, so. Wonderful, does anyone? else have any other questions for us? I, 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 I have one more question. Sure. And on this. Yeah. Uh, so how, uh, you know, you said that you don't, you don't discuss your stories with people while you're writing them. Um, how much, how much editing do you do? Like how much of it, when you write like a first draft, you know, how much of it ends up being in, in the final story? Like how much of this kind of shaping and uh, you know, like the language of it, like how much of it comes through, comes, uh, gets done in the editing process. Um, and then I guess also like, how do you know when you're done with a story? Um, I don't, with the exception of one story, which I cut quite a bit, I, I don't edit that much at the end, mm. but I edit so much as I go, um, like really hundreds of just blurts I, I throw out. You know, I, I do think that there tend to be like two buckets of writers, the ones who can kind of just draft the whole thing uh, and push ahead. And I've tried that. I've tried, you know, the thousand word a day approach or, you know, just write, don't look back, keep going approach. Um, it doesn't really feel true to who I am. And it doesn't, um, if I don't struggle with the sentence as I'm writing it, I find it hinders my next sentence you know what I mean like I kind of have to struggle with it right as it exists um so I would say I I think editing is one of the most important things but I I do do it um more in real time than all the way at the end I don't know how I know that a story is ending except intuitively it starts to feel like it's it's the right ending um 
and then again if I if I hit on something like that like I think the easiest example for me to use is um, there's a story called a map of the simplified world and towards the end of the story um, I hit upon this word it was sophistication right and so it starts with a young girl who has immigrated and she's learning the language she's like figuring out the playground and the school and then it really ends with her applying to college um, and when I was writing the ending, I was like, oh, it is about sophistication. What happens when an immigrant child sophisticates herself away from her family? And I think that that's like a pathos that's true to a lot of immigrants. Mm -hmm. um, then I felt I understood the ending and the rest of the story. And so I went back and kind of like aligned everything towards that ending. Um, yeah, so that that's how I know. Uh, well. Um, you know, again, I, I really enjoyed the hell out of this book. Uh, you know, I hope uh, if uh, you all haven't uh, picked it up already, that uh, that you'll go go ahead and order it from uh, from one of these lovely bookstores. Yes, I, I, I love both Skylight and uh, and Book Passage. So <laughs> I have included a link in the chat for anyone who hasn't grabbed their copy yet. You can use that link to purchase your very own copy of Skinship from Book Passage or you can order it from Skylight Books using the green button on the bottom of your screen. Thank you for supporting your local indie bookstores. We very much appreciate it. Again, thank you so much to Yoon and to Steph for this lovely event and for supporting Book Passage and Skylight Books. This recording will also be available for replay in just a few minutes. So you can watch it again and you can share it with all your friends and family and grab your very own copy of Skinship and all of our guests front and backlist titles as well. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Have Thank, a lovely you. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.